Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Uh, my name is Molly, and the passage today is Matthew two thirteen through 23. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you haven't already, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And while you're turning there, let's uh, exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. Morning. Uh, We are in a series of the gospel according to Matthew, and it's going to be divided up into five movements. Well, the gospel according to Matthew is divided up into five movements. Each movement ends with a teaching of Jesus, a significant passage of scripture where Jesus uh, teaches his disciples or the crowds. The first one ends with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters 5 through 7. So this first movement, we will be in chapters 1 through 7, and then we'll go on from there, movement 2, 3, 4, and 5, until uh, the resurrection and the Great Commission. But uh, I thought it was funny, I don't know if you've felt this, but uh, last week, or the last couple weeks, we've been like preaching from Matthew 1 and 2, which is, you know, Christmas passages, and it's like we're a little late, you know, it's like a month after Christmas. I had somebody last week come up, and they're like, oh, I, you're, I realized you're doing a Christmas sermon, and I thought, oh, that's nice, a Christmas sermon, but you're a month late, and I was like, oh, I guess, yeah, we kind of are, but um, what's interesting that I was thinking about that is that Christmas texts and, you know, uh, Christmas cards and Christmas nativity scenes, they almost always end in the middle of chapter two of Matthew. Like, the text that we heard read today, it's kind of uh, scary. Mo- Moses, Moses, Joseph and Mary have to flee. Uh, Herod goes on a killing spree, and I mean, I don't, th- I've never seen a Christmas card with those facts uh, in it. 
Um, I don't know if you have. If you have, it might be a little dark. But uh, all that to say is, is uh, as I was contemplating it and as I was thinking about it, Matthew 2, th- this, there's a huge, huge shift from last week's passage to this week's passage. Last week ended with what? The wise men falling on their knees, overwhelmed with joy, worshiping this child, giving him their best gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And what do we find this one? We find uh, an immediate uh, terror and having to flee and running away. And so what, what's going to happen is, is Matthew, in, in Matthew 2 is basically Matthew is going to be asking and answering this question. Where is God when everything goes wrong? Because the, the passage before this, it seemed that God was present. We were, we were promised Emmanuel, God with us, right? That's what Ma- uh, Mary was to- Joseph was told to name uh, the child, Jesus, and Emmanuel, God with us. And then all of a sudden, there's just this shift, and there's this running and this terror, and we're going to explore this whole passage together. But Matthew 2 is, is dragging us into a moment when everything seems to be going wrong, and then asking and answering the question, well, where is God in those, in those moments? And I know, you know, we've all experienced this question before. We've probably all asked this question before. We've all experienced failed plans, right? You have a plan for XYZ, for work, for life, for relationships, for schooling, for family, and it doesn't turn out how you thought it was going to turn out. We've all uh, experienced some sort of relational pain. You've had a friend a classmate, a brother, a sister, a family member, a spouse that you confided in, you trusted, and then all of a sudden you, you're hurt by them, a fractured relationship. We ask ourselves, where, where is God in these moments? We've all experienced the effects of sin and decay personally. You know the sin that just keeps repeating in your heart and your mind, the idols, the kings that are sitting on the throne of your heart. We've all experienced sin and decay with other people, physical sin and decay, sicknesses, disease, death, cancer, loss of loved ones. Where is God when everything goes wrong? And in those moments, the truth of Emmanuel, God with us, seems way, way, way more distant. Matthew 2 is dragging us into a moment where everything goes wrong. For Mary, for Joseph, for Jesus. And, when, and what I want to do is I actually want to enter into that moment, put ourselves in, in their shoes, and see what, what, what theological claims, what pr- actually very practical claims Matthew is making. And this is a heavy text, uh, which is why we're starting off on a, on a semi-heavy note, because... We've experienced, this is not something, you know, that's, that's rare to us. We have experienced these moments. Where is God when everything goes wrong? So to start, I want to actually do a little thought experiment. I want to place ourselves into the shoes of Mary and Joseph, specifically Mary. Um, think about this. Mary, was a, you're a, a teenage girl, and you have this spontaneous pregnancy. And you had this vision and you're trying to explain it to your fiancé, and he probably isn't buying it, which is why he wants to divorce you or to separate from you and, and leave you. And so you're, you're, you're trying to say, like, no, 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 but, but really, like, this is, it says it's from the Holy Spirit, and I, I promise I, this, that, and the other, and Joseph's like, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you still. I'll do it quietly, but I'll, I'm going to leave you. The heartbreak you feel from that. Then 
your fiance, Joseph, gets this other vision. He's like, hey, don't do that. So he's like, okay, I guess I'm not going to do that. Meanwhile, Jerusalem, or, uh, Israel at the time, the people of Israel are under whose imperial thumb? Rome. Taxes are already crazy high. Then you find out that you have to go back to your fiance's hometown just to take a census so that they can increase the taxes even more. And you're already trying to survive with all this crazy taxation. So then you are a eight, seven to eight month old pregnant teenager. You get on a donkey. You travel to Bethlehem. Who did you just leave behind? Your family, your mom, your aunts, your cousins, your midwives, all these people that you know. So you get to Bethlehem, you're with your fiance's family, and you have this child. By the way, your fiance's family might not trust you because you say that you spontaneously got pregnant from the Holy Spirit, and they know that that son is not Joseph's son. So you're confused, and you're like, I thought, I thought this was supposed to be God with us. I thought God was supposed to be, th- I thought this was supposed to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Then you kind of take, catch a little breath and a few years go by, you're living in Bethlehem, start to make friends with, you know, some families and some people in, in, in Bethlehem, maybe another couple with some little kids, and then all of a sudden these, this caravan of dozens and dozens of people, very rich, wealthy, wise people from the east who might speak a different language, they come and they just start worshiping your son, your toddler, and they give you gold, and you're like, hey, thanks, I could use some gold right now. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and all these things, and, and you're sitting there, and you're like, okay, okay, maybe this is, maybe this is right. Think, this is like more like God with us, right? I, when God promised me a Messiah, Jesus, to save his people from their sins, God with us, this is more of what I was thinking. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, people bowing down who I don't know who they are. Then they leave. What happens immediately after they leave? Your husband-to-be, Joseph, gets a vision and say, hey, you've got to get out of here because there are Roman soldiers leaving Jerusalem, coming to Bethlehem right now because there's a price on your toddler's head. And you're like, oh, okay. So you get up in the middle of the night on a donkey again, and you travel in the middle of the night, which is very dangerous to do, thinking, okay, I guess I got to trust this. This seems more safe than waiting around and seeing if this vision was real or not. You're traveling a couple hundred miles from Bethlehem to Egypt. Maybe while you're on the way there, Maybe when you get there, you find out that Herod, who is the puppet king, the fake king at the time, got so mad that he couldn't find your child that he decided to kill all the other boys, baby boys, two and under. Where have you just been for a few years? Bethlehem. Who do you know? Those families. Bethlehem wasn't big. You would have known the names of those toddlers, those wives and husbands, their families. You feel the weight of that. What if they're blaming me? Because it was my son they were looking for, and now they don't have a son anymore. You feel the weight of that. You carry the weight of that. Eventually, you keep traveling, keep traveling, and you get to Egypt. Don't know the language. Don't know the people. There's a Jewish community there, and so you settle down there, but you're there for a few years just kind of waiting. Finally, another breath of fresh air. You find out Herod's dead. Okay, good. We can go back home start to travel back home to go to Bethlehem. While you're there, you find out that his son, Archelaus, is actually even more violent than him, more violent than Herod. He was only king for about three or four years because he was so violent that he got kicked out. And you're like, great, I thought this was, I thought this was our moment where we could like finally settle down, the dust could clear, we could raise a family in some semblance of normalcy. And here we have Archelaus, who's worse than, worse than the first one. And so, 
another vision to Joseph, and he said, hey, we're just going to move up to this little town of like 150, 200 people called Nazareth. You're like, where's, what's Nazareth? So finally, you, you settle down and you get to Nazareth. Does that sound like God is with you? If you're Mary, if you're Joseph, you have to be, have to be wrestling with this question. God, where, where are you? The scriptures say that God is with us, and I'm here. The f- in the last four or five years, six years, however long it was, has been traumatic, and it's just been blow after blow, and I feel like I can't catch a break, and all these waves are crashing over me. What do we do in those moments? What do you do in those moments? Matthew chapter 2, the end of Matthew chapter 2, is bringing us into a moment where we feel like everything is going wrong. And he's going to anchor it in a few beautiful yet terrifyingly saddening truths. And so while we're going to be looking specifically at the context of Mary and Joseph and Matthew and what he's doing, I I want you to, as we're listening, I want us to have this question in the back of our heads. Okay, this is what happens in Matthew 2 when everything goes wrong. I want us to have this question, what happens in my life and how do I respond when everything goes wrong? And we're going to see that, that, that the hope of the gospel and the hope of Jesus actually shines way more brightly. And, and it's actually in the moments that we least expect it that God is with us. Because this thought can spiral out of control. Well, if God wasn't here and if, God didn't, if I didn't keep getting gold, frankincense, and myrrh, then God must not be there at all. So therefore, I, I, I must not have to trust him. Is, there, is God even, does he even have my back? Does he even, he even love me? And the spiraling happens. And so I want us to ask ourselves, as we look at this text, how do we respond when we say, God, where are you in these moments? Um, before we dive in, though, I want to I take a moment and just pray and ask the Lord to really bring out what he wants to tell us through this text. So if you would, would you pray with me? Father, we believe that, um, that you are here and you are with us. And we confess and admit that it's easier to believe that on the mountaintops than it is in the valleys. But we also hold, hold on to the fact that you are our shepherd. We have everything that we need. Father, teach us uh, today from Matthew chapter 2. Teach us today from the life of Joseph and Mary, teach us today from the life of your Son and from your Holy Scriptures, we ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, you would unstop our ears, and you'd remove the scales from our eyes so that we can behold wondrous things and we can magnify you with everything that we have. We love you and we pray all this in your Son's name by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Today's text, chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, is divided up into three different scenes. Three different scenes. Scene 1, scene 2, scene 3. Maybe your uh, copy of the scriptures has a little like subheading right above verse 13, 16, and 19. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at scene 1 and see that it ends with a fulfilled prophecy from the Hebrew Bible. We're going to look at scene 2 and see that it ends with a fulfilled prophecy from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. 
And finally, we're going to look at scene three and see that it ends with a fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament. If I sounded redundant, that's a good thing. I want you to see that each of these scenes ends with a fulfillment of prophecy from the scriptures. Let's dive in. Scene one. Follow along with me in verse 13. It's scene one is verses 13 to 15. It says this, after they were gone, they being the wise men, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod, notice that there's no title king anymore, is about to search for the child to kill him. Verse 14, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt, immediate and exact obedience. Verse 15, he stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. A few things. One, Joseph is back on the scene here. We took a little break from Joseph. Joseph was at the very beginning, then we took a little break from him, and now he's back. The, the, the beautiful thing about Joseph is that, uh, one, he's the son of David, and so that's how he adopted Jesus into his family, and that's how Jesus becomes the ultimate son of David. But at, in chapter one, it said that Joseph was a righteous man. After that comment, every time an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, he immediately and exactly follows the words of the angel. I don't know if you, like, sensed a little, like, repetition. Like, whenever an angel says, like, get up, take the child and his mother, go to Egypt, it literally says, so he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to Egypt. He didn't just say, like, and so Joseph did it. Like, Matthew's emphasizing there is an immediate obedience, and there's an exact obedience. That's what makes him righteous. And later, we're going to see afterwards um, that he did the exact same thing. Angel commanded him something. And then he did it immediately and exactly. Which, by the way, I just pray that that's my response to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and the Lord. And I pray that our response is that too. That whenever the Lord says something, we have an immediate and exact obedience. Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and he fled to Egypt. That's Joseph's response, and it says that Joseph was a righteous man. I pray that that's my response, and that's your response as well. So we have Joseph, immediate and exact obedience, and then we have verse 15, and this is the, uh, in, our, in, in the scene one, this is, it ends with a fulfillment of, of prophecy. If you look at the last phrase of verse 15, it says, it might be in bold or quotes or all capital letters or something like that. Uh, it says, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if we remember from a few weeks ago, Matthew is writing to a very Jewish audience, which means he's using a lot of the Old Testament to make points here. So what we have to do is we have to have one foot, you know, in the New Testament, and then we also have to have one foot in the Old Testament. Like, what, what's going on here? This quote, it doesn't say it uh, here, but it's from, maybe your footnote says it or something, it's from the prophet Hosea. Uh, Hosea was prophesying in his time, he was prophesying to a wayward Israel. Israel kept disobeying. They kept disobeying, they kept disobeying. And Hosea was prophesying to them and, and reminding them of God's faithfulness as like, Uh, uh, an invitation to stop prostituting themselves after other gods. And in fact, the Lord had Hosea actually marry somebody who then cheated on Hosea, left him, sold herself uh, into prostitution, and God had Hosea bring her back as like like an image, an example of what Israel was doing. So Hosea's life literally became an example of what Israel was doing. Israel was not following the Lord, and she was following other gods and leaving God all the time. And what happens is Hosea is prophesying in this moment, and he is saying, 
Israel, please return to the Lord. Please return to the Lord. Please return to the Lord. He loves you. He loves you like a son. It's, uh, Israel is called my son multiple times in Hosea. And then he gets to, in chapter 11, verse 1, Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what's Hosea doing in this moment? What he's doing is he's referring even back farther to the moment of God's, the demonstration of God's power and salvation in the Old Testament, which was the Exodus. If you remember what happened in the Exodus, God's people were enslaved. 400 years of slavery to Egypt. They were being sold. They were being driven to work endlessly. They were being beaten, killed, used as property, abused. And while they were in that state, they kept growing. They kept multiplying. So Pharaoh, this fake king, gets a little insecure and he gets scared. So he kills all of the baby infant boys by throwing them in the Nile River. One baby boy was spared. To be, to be, he was saved by this king who went on a killing spree to eventually come back and deliver Egypt. His name was Moses. Moses was saved by the Pharaoh killing spree and he was raised there and then he went to Midian and shepherded uh, for a while and then he came back into Egypt and he saved his people. He led them out of Egypt, led them out of slavery by 10 wonderful and terrifying acts of God, leads them through the waters, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness. Moses was the person that God decided to choose to to bring about one of the most beautiful pictures of salvation ever. First enslavement and bondage, and then deliverance and redemption and freedom. Hosea is reminding Israel of that moment. In other words, what Hosea is saying is, guys, remember how faithful God is. Remember where you were. You were enslaved. You were in bondage. You were broken. You had nothing. And look at how beautiful it was that God called Egypt, his son, or God called his son out of Egypt. God delivered you once. He's going to deliver you again. But please, please be faithful to Yahweh, to the Lord. That's what Hosea is saying in that context. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 2. Why does Matthew chapter 2 use that verse? Well, let's think about it. What happened in, in Egypt? A baby boy was saved from a king going on a killing spree in order to return and deliver his people from slavery and bondage. That's what happened in Moses. What's happening here? A baby boy, Jesus, is being saved and delivered from a king going on a killing spree of a bunch of baby boys in order to what? What does Jesus mean? Savior, save his people from their sins. What Matthew is saying is that Jesus is bringing not just the first exodus, but a new exodus. This is not just an exodus of slavery where, you're at, where you have actual chains and you're actually a slave and now you are free. What Matthew is saying here is that Jesus is bringing a new exodus from a far worse power than Egypt, from sin and from Satan. Right here, right now, Matthew is making a theological claim that in Jesus, in the moment when everything seems to be going wrong for Mary and for Joseph, in a moment when everything seemed to be going wrong for Israel when they were enslaved to Egypt, God is saying, I'm calling you out. I'm saving you. I'm delivering you from bondage. You will no longer have the chains and the shackles of sin and Satan and the world and the flesh. You will now be free because of whom? Jesus, who will save his people from their sin. God is with us, Emmanuel. Jesus is bringing about a new exodus in our hearts. End scene one. 
Scene two, verse 16. <clears throat> then Herod, again, no title king there anymore, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. It's never good when an insecure leader flies into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, uh, because that's when he heard that that's how old Jesus was from the wise men. Verse 17, then what was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled, because they are no more. What a, a very dark scene. Herod finds out that the wise men went another way because they were told to in a, in a, in a dream by an angel, and he decided to massacre all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was not big at the time. Maybe between, uh, scholars estimate between 100 and 200 people, which means that baby boys under two, two and under, there would have been about between 25 and 50. Can you imagine 25 to 50 two-year-old boys being killed? Can you imagine being Mary and Joseph on your way to Egypt, hearing that that happened? knowing their faces and their names. And you're thinking to yourself, what on earth are you doing, God? And then we have this, this, prophecy, the, uh, uh, this prophecy from Jeremiah in verse 18 that just kind of doubles down. There's weeping, there's mourning, there's weeping for children. And she's not gonna be consoled because they are no more. What's happening here? Why does Matthew use this specific verse from Jeremiah? Well, again, Matthew we have to have one foot in the New Testament, one foot in the Old Testament. This prophecy in Jeremiah comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, uh, to refresh, Jeremiah was a prophet that was prophesying to Israel during the fall of the temple, during when Babylon came in. So Jeremiah, he has a nickname called the, weep, the weeping prophet because everything Jeremiah writes is just super sad and dark. He also wrote Lamentations, which is literally like lamenting. And um, so Jeremiah is, is picturing the coming, he starts prophesying about Babylon coming in and wiping everything out, and then he's there in the moment when Babylon does come in and wipes everything out. Their temple is destroyed, their city is destroyed, and what Babylon did was Babylon actually took uh, uh, Israelites to this little city a little north of Jerusalem called Ramah, right there in verse 18, called Ramah, and that's where they were either enslaved, separated from their families, or murdered. And if they were enslaved, then they were put in chains and they were driven out and brought out to Babylon or north of Babylon or even down to Egypt. Or they were separated from their families or they were murdered on the spot right there in Ramah. And Jeremiah uses this as an example in chapter 31 saying like this is where it all happened. This is the devastation that happened in Ramah. If you, if you uh, remember though, Jeremiah 31 is actually one of the uh, beams of light in the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a very dark prophet uh, and, and book, of the, book of the Old Testament. But Jeremiah chapter 31 is actually a beam of light. If you go back, and I would encourage you this week, go back and read Jeremiah 31. All of it is beautiful. It's filled with hope. It's filled with this like, guys, the end is not, like this is, exile is not the end. And there's one little verse that Matthew quotes right here. This one little verse that says there's weeping and mourning and Rachel was weeping for her children. What Matthew doesn't quote, but what the very next verse in Jeremiah is, is Jeremiah saying, but stop weeping because your children are gonna come back from exile. 
Stop weeping because there's actually going to be hope after exile. Stop weeping because there, there is something to hope in and hope for, and that's God's faithfulness. The end of Jeremiah chapter one talks about this new covenant. I, I no longer have to write uh, a law on uh, pieces of paper because the law is gonna be written on their heart. It says that I will, Yahweh says, I will be their God, they will be my people. This is Jeremiah chapter 31. So the question that we have to be asking then is, well, why did Matthew use this specific verse in Jeremiah 31? He used the only sad, literally the only sad verse in Jeremiah 31 Matthew decided to use. Why? Because what Matthew knows is that if you were an Israelite and you heard that verse, you would know the rest of the chapter of Jeremiah 31 and you would recite it yourself. And you would just know it. You'd have it memorized. So you know that Jeremiah 31 does not end with weeping and mourning because their children are no more. Rather, you know that Jeremiah 31, it has that really sad verse, but the rest of it talks about what? A new covenant. What? A return from exile. What? A return from slavery. So what is Matthew saying here? In this moment of utter darkness, where Herod just decides to just, just, kill multiple baby boys. Yes, there is mourning, but guess what? That's not the end of the story because there will be a return from exile. There will be a return and hope. There will be a new covenant written on our hearts. Our hearts are gonna be turned from stone into flesh. That's what this scene is talking about. Have you ever felt like that? You ever felt like everything is going wrong? Chaos, darkness. You feel burdened by your sin, by other people's sin, by the effects of your sin on others and the effects of other people's sin on yourself. And you're thinking, is there actually a way out of this? Is there literally anything that I can hold on to? Matthew doesn't dismiss pain and mourning, but he says, in that, remember, it's not the end. There will be a new return. There'll be a remnant. God will prove to be faithful just like he's proven to be faithful in the Exodus, just like he's been proven to be faithful in the exile and the return from exile, and just like he's proving himself to be faithful here in Matthew chapter two. How many times has God proven himself faithful in your life? End scene two, scene three. <clears throat> Verse 19, <clears throat> After Herod died, <clears throat> an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So here's this immediate, verse 21, this immediate and this exact obedience. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. So glimmer of hope, things could and might be going well here. Verse 22, but... When he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So we seem to be having a glimmer of hope here and then they find out that the son, Archelaus, is actually way worse than the dad. He's scared and the angel of the Lord reaffirms that and says, yes, you, uh, don't go back there. Instead, go to a, a no-name place. Um, now, what's interesting, let's look at verse uh, 23 again. He went and he settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. 
So a couple things here. One, it says prophets, plural. It doesn't say prophet, singular. And then also, I don't know if your scripture, if your copy of the scripture says this, but there's no quotes around that he would be called a Nazarene, or it's not bolded, or it's not in all caps, or it's not underlined. And if you take those words that he would be called a Nazarene, and you searched for it in the Old Testament, guess where you would find it? You would not find it. It's not there. So, what on earth is Matthew doing? Because clearly this has to be a fulfillment of prophecy, because Matthew says it is, and I believe Matthew, and I think he's a lot smarter than I am, and he is. So, what is Matthew doing? Well, uh, whenever it says prophet versus prophets, it means that it could be a theme in scripture. So to fulfill what was said through the prophets, like plural, like this is a, a theme in scripture, and uh, that he would be called a Nazarene. There are two um, meanings to this that are really, really important, and let's get technical for a quick second, and then we'll, we'll come back out. There are two reasons uh, and two meanings to this. The first, uh, that he would be called a Nazarene. Again, you can't find that um, those words in the Old Testament. And in fact, Nazareth wasn't even a town during Old Testament times. It was only a town about 100 years before Jesus. So it's a brand new town. There's probably like 40 to 60 people there. Uh, I mean, it's like podunk, stick town, like in the middle of nowhere town. So, so what's going on? Um, what Matthew is doing is he's, he's, he's doing a little wordplay. So Nazareth in Hebrew is spelled with three letters. N-Z-R. They only had consonants in Hebrews. N-Z-R. Nazareth. And then they just added a little, you know, T-H. Um, so N-Z-R. There's a Hebrew word that's also spelled with those letters. N-Z-R. And it means stick or branch. So literally Nazareth means like stick town or branch town. I mean, literally like it's in the sticks. So, because it's in the middle of nowhere as well. So you have N-Z-R, Nazar, Nazar. And you have the Hebrew word Nazar. N-Z-R, and it means stick or branch. Why is this significant? Isaiah 11, Isaiah 30, Isaiah 52, a lot of Jeremiah and most of Ezekiel have this image of what they call a remnant or a shoot from a stump. Israel was thought to be this tree, and when exiles, or uh, when Babylon and Assyria came in, they chopped the tree down and they burned the stump. This is the imagery, the poetic imagery of what happened to the nation of Israel. And the hope that they held on to every single time and throughout the prophets, they did this, they, they, they uh, progressed this theme throughout the entire prophets, is they had this image of this dead, burnt stump and this little stick, this little shoot, this little remnant of Israel coming out. Isaiah 11 says that uh, from, the, from the root of Jesse, from the stem of Jesse, one will come who will have the spirit of the Lord upon him. He'll have the spirit of wisdom and justice and he'll have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he'll delight in the fear of the Lord. And it goes on to say that this one will lead his people out to a place where the lion will sleep with the lamb, where the children will play with snakes and not be worried, and where all the, the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And they say that this little stick, NZR, is going to be that person. Matthew knows that. And he's saying it's important that Jesus is called a Nazarene because he is the shoot, the stick, the branch of David, the branch of Jesse that will come lead his people into a land so prosperous and so beautiful and deliver them in a new exodus and bring them a new covenant. And he's the one that all of this is pointing to. That's the first significance of why it's called Nazarene. Second significance of why it's important and he's called Nazarene is because, the, like I said earlier, the city of Nazareth did not exist. 
And if you remember in the Gospel of John, there's this guy named Nathaniel, and he hears that the Messiah is from Nazareth, and he says, Nazareth, what good could come out of Nazareth? Or nothing good could come out of Nazareth. Whatever he says, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, He says, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. So Nazareth was this obscurity town. It was this town of obscurity and no significance at all. And in Isaiah and in the prophets and the Old Testament, they talk about this, this servant, this Messiah, who's going to be what? He's going to be a suffering servant. He's going to come from obscurity. The people are not going to know him. They're not going to care. He's not going to like ride on a horse into Jerusalem. He's going to ride on a donkey. He's going to be a, a, pretty much a, a, a nobody. Why is it important that he would be called a Nazarene? Because what, what's Nazareth? Now, why is that significant for us? When we ask these questions, where is God when everything goes wrong, what is this telling us? It's telling us that God is there with us. When we feel like we're in obscurity and we're not known and we're not loved, what do we look to? Jesus, the suffering servant who's from obscurity, who, who had a very kind of chaotic and traumatic upbringing, he's there with us. You see, it has to be, it has to be that Jesus enters our sufferings and our weaknesses because if he didn't, then he would not be relatable and he would not be Messiah. He is with us in the suffering, in the pain, in the chaos. When you feel the weight and the burden of, of, of chaos and, and sin and decay going wrong, when you feel that because you see it in other people's lives, when you feel that because you see it in your own life, you know Jesus is there with us. He's walked in our shoes before. When you are in Christ, you are a new creation. When you are in Christ, you have experienced a new exodus out of slavery. When you are in Christ, you no, you no longer need to have somebody teach you, but rather the law is written on your hearts. You no longer have a heart of stone, you have a heart of flesh. And when you are in Christ, Christ relates to you. Christ is with you. God suffers with and for his people. So when we ask ourselves, where is God when everything goes wrong, the answer is he's right there. He's right there with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. This culminates on the cross, right? The, 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 these first two chapters of Matthew are foreshadowing and, and, and implying the last couple chapters of Matthew where Jesus, nowhere else does he demonstrate his, his love, for us and, love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ, what? He died for us. This culminates on the cross of God being with us. He took our sin on himself. He gave us his life. And then Paul says, when we suffer with him in life, when we suffer with him, we will, always be, we will also be glorified with him. We will be raised to new life. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your love and your beauty and the fact that you are with us. God, I ask that um, I, I know there are as many stories as there are people in this room, there are as many heartbreaks as there are people in this room. And Holy Spirit, I just, I ask that you would bring the truth of Matthew 2 to our hearts. That we would know that you are always with us. 
Father, for those who feel no peace, I ask that you would bring them peace. For those who feel distance, distant, I ask that you would draw them close. Father, make it real that um, you have delivered us from bondage to sin and Satan. You're bringing about a new covenant in our hearts through your blood and that you suffer with us and you are right there with us. We love you and we thank you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Thanks again for listening and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.